0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 126, Fighting Space Effects. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. This is part four of our six part series on the human research program. Today we're going to focus on the human health countermeasures element, one of the five teams at NASA Johnson Space Center working on finding the best methods and technology to support safe, productive human space travel, but more specifically, seeking to understand the physiological effects of spaceflight, the effects on astronaut health. Giving you further insight into human health countermeasures is Laura Bulweg, Element Manager, and Dr. Peter Norsk, Element Scientist, and a professor at the Center for Space Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. Together, they lead the group that lends biomedical expertise for the development and assessment in areas such as medical standards, vehicle and spacesuit requirements, and countermeasures, which are ways to preemptively fight the effects of space, like for example, exercising. And all of this is done to ensure crew health during all phases of flight and to prepare for missions deeper into space. So here we go. The intricacies of what we're doing to fight the effects of space on human health with Laura bolweg and Dr. Peter Norsk. Enjoy.
1: T-minus five seconds and counting, mark.
0: Here she goes. Houston, have a Laura and Peter, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today.
1: Thanks for inviting us. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, me too. Thank you very much. So today we're going to be talking about human health countermeasures. Now, I'm going to start it by asking, and this might be a stupid question, but what's a countermeasure?
2: A countermeasure is a... procedure or an equipment to uh, be used against the negative effects of space flight on the human body. So an example is if you are prone to fainting after space flight on the ground you would have uh, you do something in order to make the body resistant to gravity. One example is you use a garment that compresses the lower part of the body and keeps fluid and blood in the upper parts of the brain perfused and you drink salt and water before landing. That's a countermeasure that consists of civil items. Hmm.
0: Okay, so it's a, way, it's a way of preventing something from happening or I guess a, a response to some effect of space flight.
2: Yeah, any negative health effects or something that affects performance in a negative fashion for the mission.
0: Okay, so would sitting on my butt and watching TV all day a countermeasure to fight the amount of tv i want to watch would be to work out every once in a while yes okay all right that's a uh, that's the way i like to think or oh, you it. could uh, sh-
2: you could you could simply shut off the tv and uh, do something <laughs> sensible what are you trying to say <laughs> <Peter>? <laughs> <laughs> and
1: a countermeasure can have a certain protocol to it so you could have a certain exercise regime
0: yeah. okay yeah there you go all right so so to get into countermeasures and fully understand what you do for this particular element of human research. Um, let's go into your backgrounds. Laura, why don't you start? What's your What's your background and how does it relate to countermeasures?
1: Sure. Um, I'm a mechanical engineer from University of Akron and I came to NASA as an intern working um, shuttle uh, training propulsion. And then um, over time I changed to teach uh, the International Space Station and de- was a project manager for developing the simulator for the first ISS crew hmm. and uh, trained the second class for the first ISS crew. So it, it's been uh, a long time. And so I really appreciate space flight and uh, the operational aspects and so I wanted to come to the human research program to get early in the program to really make a a difference in changing things before the vehicle's built before things are locked down.
0: Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when you were, you said you were training crew, so naturally you have that human interaction when it mm-hmm. comes to how people, you know, interpret how to train with certain things, so you have that human element and incorporating that ahead of time naturally makes sense, right? You want to design something that maybe might not be or might you know, instead of designing something that is the most efficient for what it is to do, it's the most efficient but with incorporating that human factor in it.
1: Absolutely. We, with countermeasures, we don't think about just our specific element. We think about the big picture. So we might think about human factors, how that plays into the countermeasure. Mm. Um, so it's not just a physiological, but physiological and human factors together. Okay.
0: Now, Peter, what about you? What's your background?
2: Well, I'm an MD from the University of Copenhagen and uh, but I actually started my space interest long before that when I was 10 years of age in 63 watching or actually listening to at Mm. that time John Glenn doing his first orbit around the earth and that inspired me for my whole life and when I became an MD I looked up a certain research group in Denmark there was only one for space medicine because Denmark is a pretty small country Mm. so we were the only ones and I worked in that group and kind of became the leader of that group for many, many years before I came to NASA about nine years ago. So before that, I did the research on the space station. Before that, on the Russian space station Mir. And before that, again, on the shuttle. So cardiovascular research, understanding fundamentals of gravity and microgravity on the cardiovascular system.
0: Very important research. So you did research on, um, you have kind of an understanding of what's happening to the human body in space and naturally you being part of the countermeasures part of things it's it's figuring out ways on how to counteract that
2: yeah in europe you know it was more fundamental understanding the basic uh, adjustment and adaptation of the cardiovascular system to to weightlessness mm-hmm. uh, so when i came to nasa it was more kind of using that knowledge as well as other physiological knowledge to counteract the negative health effects of spaceflight. So it be, that's why I actually went to NASA to have a more applied approach. Okay.
0: Now, it's worth mentioning, Peter, that you've been on the podcast before. Me and you had a great discussion on, we were going through the hazards of human spaceflight, and we talked about exactly what you're talking about, how gravity affects the human body in space. I think, the last, And this might be an update, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are now a professor at the Center for Space Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, that's correct. All right, well, congratulations on Thank that. you very much. How do you split your time? How do you do professor and do uh, NASA research? Or are they very much interwoven?
2: Totally. Okay. And uh, that's why it, it requires a little more work so because I have to do uh, lectures and uh, papers that I didn't d- do before uh, in my capacity as professor at Baylor College of Medicine. But I enjoy doing it and it actually improves my work at NASA, administering scientifically together with Laura the human health countermeasure program uh, project actually human health countermeasure element in the human research program <laughs> I'm, I'm learning you know still learning yeah. <laughs> the the acronyms and and how things work but i think i'm getting there
0: yeah me too i'm always learning right. um now let's let's get into it let's go into exactly what you guys are doing human health countermeasures laura what is this organization what are you focusing on with it
1: oh, well peter and i co-lead the element Um, Peter develops a scientific strategy, so everything we do is based on sound scientific thought and principles And then um, we work together to turn those into um, an implementation plan. And so the implementation is a little bit more in in my my side of things. Um, So he challenges me on a daily (laughs) basis on uh, how to get the most science in with the research platforms that we have available, um, including the International Space Station. Hmm. But we have research platforms on the ground as well.
0: Okay, so let's go into, I guess, the implementation a little bit more. What is it exactly that you are implementing? What are the things you're focusing on to figure out what these countermeasures, what countermeasures we need for successful spaceflight?
1: So based on his scientific strategy, we put together something that might get, for, for example, if the countermeasure is projected to be hardware, then put together a hardware validation plan to make sure that the hardware will work. So we've got enough things in the schedule, enough resources, enough of the right skill sets pulling in so that at the end of the day, when it's time to deliver it to the right program, the the hardware or software or whatever the countermeasure is, it's gone through um, rigorous engineering um, thought process.
0: Okay. So Peter, Laura mentioned that the decisions made on what to implement has to be based on sound science. So what? how do you define that? What is the sound science um, that you're looking at?
2: Well, science, you know, it, it's one of those mis- mystic words whereby you can hide behind and seem very clever, and nobody understands what you actually mean. So people <laughs> use this word erroneously many times. Hmm. Science just means knowledge you can trust. Hmm. That's it. So how do I gain knowledge I can trust, meaning it has been, you know, all kinds of questions as to when you got this knowledge, you measure it, what are the inaccuracies, did you take this and that into account? I mean, taking that into consideration and controlling for all the unknowns is good science. So my job is to make sure that we are following the best practice of science that's already being done in the United States in particular, and but in the Western world. Uh, making sure that those procedures are used also at NASA at an adequate level, even better maybe. Mm. And also making sure that these best practices are then being implemented into if you test something on ISS in an analog in the best way. And that's where Laura helps me making sure that is happening because she knows how to do that. I don't know that. I know what the best practices what kind of science and questions we have to ask. She knows where it can be done or not be done, how to keep it on schedule. That's very important with me because I'm always out of schedule. I don't <laughs> keep the schedules, but she does. And also making sure you know that you can actually fry this experiment on the ISS, uh, if I wish to bring up an elephant instead of a mouse uh, to test something, she would tell me that's not possible, then mm-hmm. I'll ask for having a giraffe, He would say no, and then we end up with human beings or whatever. So this, this is a kind of the practical way of doing things that the management system actually makes an excellent contribution to. Hmm.
0: So great science, naturally, that has to be done on the International Space Station.
2: Yeah, the, the problem is that best science, you know, we know, it's my job to know how to do that sure. in general. But how it ends up is sometimes different because you have constraints uh, doing, Mm. uh, uh, you know, space flight is also very operational, there are very many unknowns, there are other considerations, uh, the management system may not always, or the engineering or leadership system may not always know that, you know, know, be able to implement the best practices. So we have to compromise and find out whether that it makes the whole thing worthwhile or not. So that's actually the most difficult decision sometimes. Mm.
0: So, Laura, what are the constraints of space flight that make maybe doing research on the International Space Station a little bit harder?
1: But I think Peter alluded to it. Um, there's, you know, size. You know, is it something that is possible to do on the International Space Station? Is it, you know, the weight, um, the schedule? We normally uh, have our proposals about 18 months before. So there's enough time to work through the implementation. Um, there's also, typically, we don't think about a particular study we often are thinking of a series of studies and how they come together to answer um, uh, specific milestones. Hmm. And so it's, it's not just study by study, but is there enough? I think a lot of the implementation is, is there enough time to get the research questions we need answered uh, while we have ISS available? It's an important platform for long duration. Um, and so we need to make sure that the research gets done during the time frame we have uh this important research platform
0: yeah time time that the research platform will exist as a platform Mm -hmm. uh but i'm sure time is also a constraint when it comes to astronauts right you're not the only ones trying to do research on the Mm -hmm. international space station you have to make sure that it's going to be something that the astronauts will be able to conduct in their own very tight schedules uh something i know is is a big constraint so naturally, you know, you can't do a bunch of, um, you can't do everything that you want on the International Space Station. Where else could you test some of the countermeasures that you would like to do?
2: Well, we have something called analogs, a new word I actually learned when I came to NASA. We <laughs> called it kind of simulation models in Europe. And we simulate the effects of weightlessness by, ma- in the major, for the major parts, by using head down bed uh, Unloading the body, and shifting the fluid upwards by a slight tilt of six degrees head down. And that is being used because you can do it for long durations, uh, not as long as on the ISS, but maybe for 60, 90 days. And uh, it gives you a lot of the effects physiologically that you will see during unloading in weightlessness. Uh, There are limitations to the model, uh, but you can actually exploit those limitations in understanding more of the mechanisms if you know what are the differences from that simulation model to actually what's happening in weightlessness and seeing differences in outcomes of physiological variables. So it, it's a good model. Head-out water immersion has also been used, but only for short periods uh, in Russia they did it for you know floating in water is actually being very much like weightlessness mm. and they've done it for a couple of weeks but it's a very difficult model because you can't measure many things underwater uh, it's more difficult than doing it in space actually oh wow uh, but but uh, these are dry immersion is a model uh, whereby you are not getting wet as such but it's still much more complicated to do research being submerged in water even though it's dry immersion with a sheet protecting the body against the water, but still with the water pressure around your body. And um, so we have chosen to do the head down uh, bed rest study as an analog.
1: Hmm.
0: So what questions are you asking in these analogs that specifically relate to countermeasures? Yeah,
2: we, we have selected the physiological systems that are susceptible to unloading. So that will be the musculoskeletal system, and muscles, bone, because you unload it uh, from feet to hit, but you're still loaded actually from front to back, but that's much less than when you're upright and walking. And so if you are recumbent, uh, inactive, in a bedrest setting with the fluid shifts, you can simulate many of the aspects of demineralization of the bones as well as a- atrophy of the muscles. And then using certain exercise techniques in a horizontal position on a treadmill with loading with springs you can actually simulate what's going on on the treadmill on ISS Mm. and thereby see how efficient your countermeasures work and protect bone and muscle so that's one thing that's very kind of big thing Mm. and uh, we have been very successful with that but you have to test it finally on ISS after doing it in an analog but you can prepare for it and you can prepare for the best prescription to be tested on ISS to save crew time. And then also um, understanding the fluid shift, the magnitude of the fluid shift into the head, because as uh, you probably well know, and this is our top priority to understand why the uh, increased pressure in the head of the fluids affect the eye and how it affects the eye Mm -hmm. and the brain. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, we are doing that. Now, we can also do that in a bed rest setting, This is a very recent breakthrough, uh, actually since the last podcast, and um, that we can create manifestations of those those ocular changes called uh, the spaceflight-associated neuro-ocular syndrome, very complicated, the SANS syndrome, that is how it affects the eye and the vision. We can do that in bed rest and uh, use it as a precursor and an analog for spaceflight.
0: Wow. So, Okay. Now, what about and this? Uh, you're thinking about. You mentioned something that's sort of recent uh, from from the Very last. Very recent. Podcast. This is a
2: breakthrough. It's a big thing for us. Yeah. Because using an analog saves time on saves time on uh, ISS, and uh, we can prepare a much better countermeasure testing than we could before.
0: Hmm. So, um, let's talk about the time it takes to uh, put together an experiment and ask the right questions you know what's what's happening to the human body is naturally is a good one um and you have that in space so what's happening that process from going from that point what's happening to the process of how can we mitigate this problem how can we fix it what does that look like
2: well you know there's that's how long it takes to get it implemented. to so ISS is a different issue. So the whole thing for a whole experiment. Well, I can. Uh, we we have. There's an experiment called the fluid shift, which is understanding the relationship between the shift of fluids in microgravity, and the ocular. You know, the vision mm-hmm. changes. Uh, the sight changes of the eye. And uh, that started when I came in 2011. We selected it, and it's just a. I think it's just about to be uh, it's just been completed in data collection in space and it's not completed as a study yet so it takes apparently up to 9 years before it's published uh, I can give you another example I did an experiment myself before I came to NASA and into my employment at NASA and that started in 2006 and ended in 15 as a publication again 9 years, so it takes about 9 years for a full study Wow, so it takes a long time, but it's not the same as on in in with laboratory work in a normal earthbound setting it it, it takes much shorter, but that's because of the uh, the access to astronauts is more limited uh, mm. I think we can test about how many astronauts Laura, on an annual basis about two or three
1: Maybe four or five. Maybe yeah. four times. Sometimes it depends how many sign up to do the experiment that particular year. Yeah,
2: so sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it goes fast. It 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 differs.
0: Okay, now you mentioned astronauts signing up. This is you know this is this might be actually I, f- I forget if we've mentioned this on a recent podcast, uh, but. Um, you know, you can't force astronauts to do everything that you want them to do. So what does that process look like from when you have an idea, when you have some experiment that you want to finally get up on the International Space Station, and getting them to conduct the experiment?
1: Well, first of all, the research goes through in a, um, a review board. So mm. they look at it and determine if it's reasonable, if the risk is reasonable, if the, the science they want to collect makes sense and is safe. Um, and then the uh, after the research is selected by the Human Research Program uh, to go to flight, it is presented to the crew members for them to decide if they want to participate or not.
0: Okay. So when you have this review board and you're looking at different experiments that you want to conduct, have a lot of them already been done on the ground and tested in some capacity and you want to now move them up to... Up to uh, space flight, or maybe they're brand new, and it's something that's very interesting, and they want to do up, uh, and they want to fly it.
2: Well, partly yes, and partly no. So, okay. uh, if you take one study again, like the fluid shift, would be one of our highest prioritized studies. Mm-hmm. Um, it consists of several sub-studies with different uh, principal investigators for each. So we select the three and combine them into one. So each of those. You know the procedures, the measurements have been tested in a laboratory setting very thoroughly by these investigators and this is actually the reason they were selected probably because they have a lot of experience Mm. but what is new is to combine them and use them in an either analog setting or in space and that is totally different from on earth and therefore it's new every time and it's something that's very exciting the first time we do an experiment and you actually have to count on having failure in the first couple of experiments you know, before it becomes routine for the whole system. But usually it works out very well. Uh, we do have some setbacks, you know, with equipment that doesn't work at some point in time because it's a very tight schedule. You have to measure this particular variable at this particular time because they have everything set up minute-by-minute minute basis or five-minute-by-five-minute five basis, something like that. And uh, if they fail, they have to skip it, come back to it, and use Alicia's time for doing it, maybe. So uh, that postpones things mm. to some degree, but not very much. I'm, it's actually extremely impressive, how it works for NASA and space, extremely impressive. I am uh, still impressed. Mm. And um, it's actually uh, because of what Laura and her team and everybody else with that background actually do because they have the experience from many many decades of implementation that makes it possible and that is also why they push back on the scientists like me <laughs> who thinks we can, who think we can do everything in space <laughs> and we can't uh, so that's that interaction is extremely uh, important for success
0: all right. Well, if you keep asking for elephants, it's gonna or elephants, it's gonna it's gonna go that route. Yeah,
2: we we gave up that one. The giraffe, you know, it's very interesting because the giraffe is a very good model for the um, understanding extreme fluid shift on Earth because when the giraffe lowers it, its head, is in danger of having brain edema, so it has to use certain mechanisms in order to avoid having too high pressure in the brain. We do have a smaller problem, but it, it does exist in weightlessness with too high of a pressure in the brain as well, and we are concerned about the exudation of fluid into some brain structures as well as the eye and that's what we're looking into it's not the same as a giraffe of course but (laughs) the model is just more extreme in that regard so that's why we have actually looked in we haven't done any studies per se from NASA but people have we have looked into the data that's been done already on giraffes in Africa to understand some of those
0: Hmm. so looking into some of the some of the past some of what we've learned from previous space flight, and I guess we can incorporate outside of spaceflight and how, what we understand about these shifting fluids, maybe in, like you said, other species, um, that relate to, to spaceflight. How have we
2: grown through time? I think that we have improved tremendously. We are using a lot of clinical uh, disease models, uh, investigations in patients, in order to understand some of the syndromes of spaceflight. It's not the same. Uh, because astronauts are extremely healthy, they are selected to be healthy, Mm. and they go to space and see some of the same changes as we see in patients, but it's not the same in, in total because they are not sick. I mean, even in space they are totally healthy, but they have some of the same manifestations, but not fully. One example again, if you look into the eye changes, the vision changes in space, it actually resembles, and for a long time we thought it was the same, it resembles an increased pressure in the brain in certain patients. It's called idiopathic intracranial hypertension, so too high of a pressure because of some food disturbances mm. in the production of seropospinal fluid. So that that's some, inc- some patients will increase. They do have vision changes also, some of them. So we thought it was the same thing, but it turns out that when you compare certain measures in sp- during space flight with that patient group, it's not the same. And the manifestations are also a little bit different in the eye. So you have some similarities, some differences. We still use patient models to understand the differences, to understand the mechanisms of space flight. And I just tell you, you know, we are surprised every time. And we are still being surprised by what is actually happening in the, with the fluid distribution in space, which we didn't know before, just a few years before. I'm talking right now. So uh, uh, space flight is unique in that regard.
0: Hmm. So Laura, when it comes to what I'm hearing is, you know, you can study fluid shifts, but you have to do it from all of these different perspectives, right? You have to you have to look at history, you have to maybe bring in other species and and maybe if you look at all of these different angles something might surprise you along the way. So what is human health countermeasures doing to manage all of the, the driving forces that, that Peter keeps coming to you with, and, oh, I want to do all of this research. What do you do to manage and prioritize what's important and what we're going to focus on?
1: That's an excellent question. Um, we look uh, at strategic planning and not just um, implementation of specific studies, but look at a series of studies. And what we do is really novel. If you look around the world, there, there really is no place that strategically takes a series of studies plans it out as a project with milestones um, that consider where do we go next. So we we have what we call decision points where we stop and think where do we want to go next based on the findings we have and then carve out a path forward. Um, There really is no place that I know of in the world that takes that approach, that takes the scientific rigor and puts um, management milestone rigors with it so that we can deliver on time with. validated countermeasures. And so that's one of the reasons I'm really excited to be in the human research program Mm. is because there's a lot of excellent research that's done with NIH, but really this stepping stone approach and putting all the resources together in a very funneled way to produce real countermeasures is is something novel and, and special that we have at NASA.
0: So it sounds like that integration, uh, combining these elements, is, are really important to have that, that, those checks and balances of the science and the management aspects of things. What really piqued my interest, though, is when you were saying that if you're looking further out, right, you can only plan so far because when it comes to science, something might surprise you. And you mm-hmm. say you might have to carve out another path yep. because something might come up and say, this is very interesting, we should dedicate resources in the future to investigating this path and going down that way. So what is that, what is that like from the planning perspective of planning and integrating all of these things, but doing it to a certain point that has to include a certain amount of flexibility when it comes to discovering new things?
1: Yes, We each year we get a chance to to replan and again we have these decision points where we can stop and pause uh, peter and other scientists can review all the scientific findings and if the assumptions that went into our plan and our resources aren't valid anymore we can bring that story forward uh, that's something that the human research program um, really encourages us to do is to be able to change our path if the science does surprise us or i should say when the science surprises us
0: yeah so naturally being you know human health countermeasures we're, we're going through all the elements of the human research program you've mentioned human research program we're going through all of these elements they're not siloed right you're not making your own decisions and, and going up your own little chain there is crosstalk with all of the other elements to make mm-hmm. sure that everyone's in line and i think one of the more interesting things that we've discovered or at least talked about in some of these recent podcasts is that you can come up with an idea for a countermeasure something you may Realize maybe we should implement this, and this is the best way to counter these possible effects. But then you discover that these countermeasures produce their own side effects, and now you have to investigate those and make sure that it's not going to affect too, too much downstream. So what is that like relationship-wise with all of the other elements and making sure that you're talking to one another and realizing the effects of these decisions?
1: We definitely have um, integrated projects where we're... Um, working on the same goal with other elements. In fact, I was the element manager for human factors and behavioral performance Hmm. and have recently um, moved to human health countermeasures. Um, So we definitely are well integrated. And and just like other managers have um, done this cross-training, we uh, are familiar with the other areas, and then we organize these projects. Um, I don't know if you want to mention the CBS project. It's one of the scientific projects that we
2: yeah that's one very good example of integration with between disciplines Mm -hmm. Um, so we have uh, three different disciplines being integrated in that project one is all the sensory motor work we are doing sensory motor means uh, the balance system and the relationship between what you see what you feel balance wise in the inner inner ear as well as what you feel from your limbs and muscles integrated into keeping balance i mean walking as a human being shouldn't be possible when you look at it because it should be very easy just to tumble to one outside or back and forth because you're very long compared to the uh, support of your feet. Mm. But because of the sensor motor system and the nervous system and regulations all the time and the balance system, you can keep your balance all the time. Mm. Now, that's more difficult after space flight. So, that's one issue we have that you are totally confused. Unlike a drunk person who has been drink- drinking too much mm. after uh, space flight, they haven't been drinking just to make sure, but it looks like it sometimes. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we want to mitigate that. That's one example. So, that is now being integrated into research with everything that's going on in the brain, apart from that particular issue, you know, cognition as well as perception and uh, memory and things like that, uh, behavior. And so, that we are combining those two pieces of research. And then we are also, um, uh, uh, so we look, yeah, we are looking into the behavioral sciences, uh, sensory motor. And the cerebral structural changes of the brain in one part, in order to understand interaction between the different systems. So, th- actually, this is very interesting for me because before I came to NASA, I did never, I had never worked together with behavioral scientists or <laughs> psychologists. And actually, as a medical doctor, you don't really regard these people <laughs> as anything, right? And then you you come to NASA, and you see the what they're doing is very very uh, uh, important for. Uh, the brain function and for your balance system. So uh, we work together now on a very very day-by-day basis and there's a structure for that at NASA to do that. So that's created by the managers like Laura and her colleagues Mm. which scientists would never invent. (laughs) Scientists are very siloed and Mm. very focused on their own performance. They're also very selfish. Now this is taken out of the scientists at NASA by the management system and making much better science. So I think everybody agrees it's a good thing but you have to be forced to it sometimes. Hmm. And that works very well, and it, it actually limits resources being spent. It makes it more efficient, uh, you have better science this way, but it's also, it can be difficult at times to have people understanding how to work together, but that's the task of management.
0: So when you're working together and you are trying to come up with decisions for the future on what things to implement for spaceflight when it comes to human health uh, countermeasures, what specific countermeasures part do you actually take to the table and and try to enforce or what what is your perspective when you bring that to the table Uh,
2: the perspective is that you you do the research to understand first what's going on Uh, the next thing is what are the mechanisms the third thing is that based on that how big is the risk Mm -hmm. and then uh, fourthly how do we mitigate it if necessary And the mitigation is the treatment against it or the counteraction of what that weightlessness does to that system. So one example again, if you have flu shifts to the head, increased pressure in the eye, and uh, you're not only concerned about the vision changes but uh, permanent damage to the eye and some parts of the brain, you have to move the fluid back. How do you do that in space? Well, one way of doing it is maybe to draw it back by sub pressure around the lower body to keep the f- drawing the fluid back and if you maybe do that intermittently at some point in time it may be enough or not enough to mitigate the effects of that those manifestations so that's a countermeasure so there'll be a box mm-hmm. around the lower body that has to be delivered to NASA to fly in deep space to mitigate this issue if it appears in the person so that that's uh, that, that, that's what we that's one vision for that uh, it's more complicated than that you just making it simple all the garment and the fluid loading after landing so people don't faint because of the autostatic intolerance. Uh, It could be um, we have immune changes in space whereby the confined environment and the stressful environment induces changes to the immune system that makes uh, us more susceptible to infections and allergic reactions. So if that's too much and affects performance. We have to mitigate that by nutritional nutritional countermeasures, better food, um, maybe some pharmacological agents, some medication that is not harmful. Uh, aspirin actually helps a little bit, as well as some other medication, and then also uh, changing the uh, procedures, the operational environment, so the stressfulness is less on each individual. So things like that.
0: Okay seems like there's, there's certain – I like the steps that you kind of laid out, kind of figuring out what's the problem, understanding the mechanisms. You mentioned risks, um, and it seems like one of the one of the biggest parts that this organization contributes to is that next part. Once you identify a risk and identify maybe how impactful it is to the success of the mission, this is where you start investigating, well, how can we counteract this risk? Yeah, we have two sets
2: of uh, – you know, we have the health that can create – you know, you have effective weightlessness during a long time can create some – effects on maybe bone demineralization that lasts forever and then is detrimental for a lifetime if you don't mitigate it in flight so that's one health risk that has to be mitigated for ethical reasons as well and then you have performance decrements performance that's not really a health risk but makes your uh endangers the because your performance too low and therefore you have to mitigate that also during this So th- these are different types of countermeasures. So the behavioral scientists are very concerned about performance, and we are very much concerned about the the, the risk to health.
0: To health, that's where the difference is, okay.
2: I, I would say with the sensory motor system and the balance disturbances is more performance-oriented because you usually recover a couple of days after landing on a planetary surface. But I mean, for those two first days, you need to be able to do something in order, if something happens, uh, when you land on Mars, have to be able to get out of the vehicle and into your spacesuit if something happens immediately mm-hmm. and therefore we had to mitigate that okay
0: so that's this is where this is where you're starting to understand where these different elements are coming into play we've already done i think it was part two of this series was on the human factors and behavioral performance you, you said there they're trying to answer questions that are trying to maximize the performance of these astronauts but it sounds like when it comes to this organization it's more about making sure that they are going to be healthy yeah. throughout all the phases well we of also
2: look into performance but you're correct but and also for for the behavioral sciences they're also concerned about of course the damages to the brain that may be health oriented yes. so so that's so that that that, over. yeah yeah so it, it does cross over. hmm
0: so when it comes to laura you you mentioned some of the your your past experience with crew training and involving the crew and there was there was elements of human factors there as well coming to human research program and being so close to the science end of things how has your perspective changed since that previous role and now looking at how the science is done uh, from that end of things
1: I think I've gained a, a lot of respect for our scientific community the rigorous way they approach things it can take some some time and real thought to follow what their um, processes are. Hmm. But it's very rigorous. And so we have a human system risk board that's independent of the human uh, research program. And what they do is help educate us. It's a team of doctors, astronauts, managers that help characterize for each of our risks what the likelihood of that risk occurring is, and what the consequence is for different types of missions. Uh, and so they they put colors against our risk, and that helps us prioritize. For example, when Peter was talking about the, the sans uh, risk, that is considered a red risk. And therefore, it is a high priority because the likelihood and consequence is considered very serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we have a very rigorous um, methodology for how we approach things, how we prioritize them, um, and then solve these challenging questions for exploration. So, yeah, that,
0: and that's a big key point is when you're categorizing and identifying these risks, you mentioned a couple of them, but when you, it sounds like there's a red, probably a yellow and a green, right? Those are the other ones. But when it's red, that would, and correct me if I'm wrong, be a severe risk to the health of the astronaut and perhaps the success of the mission. Y-
1: yes. Um, usually it's considered either under uh, operational mission impact or mm. long-term health.
2: I see. Okay. Yeah, these, are, these distinctions are very important, but you know, it goes together. One example is the degradation of the muscle strength uh, if you don't exercise properly in space because you are deactivated by weightlessness. That, ha- that affects both health and performance. So we need to find out how strong do you have to stay in order to uh, perform well enough. Mm-hmm. You may actually accept some degradation, but to a certain level. And defining that is not easy, but that's what we've been doing for a long time. And, uh, but also it's a decrement to hills if you have too much of a degradation in the muscle because then it's very difficult to re-establish the strains. So if you get too far down, uh, people in wheelchairs have, have totally disused muscle. You, you would never be able to re-exercise them back to normal. So, I mean, th- there's both the hills and the performance uh, uh, aspects of everything we do. The first is performance and then you have effects on health.
0: Okay, so if we're looking at the International Space Station now, we have 20 years, almost 20 years continuously of human habitation. There's a lot of experience when it comes to astronauts living and working in space for a long time. So if we were to take a snapshot of today, what countermeasures are in effect now uh, to ensure the health of the crew when they're on six-month missions aboard the International Space Station?
2: Yes, uh, one is the exercise system on ISS is very efficient. It works, it protects bone and muscle pretty well. And uh, But the challenge is to have a smaller vehicle going into deep space because you can't use that big exercise system, but that mm. it works. So we know that, we didn't know that maybe uh, 20 years ago, we didn't know that. So we know that now and we know what kind of uh, loading we have to expose the body to in order to keep bone and muscle intact at a level that's acceptable. Another one is the landing uh, avoiding or mitigating fainting Mm. uh, by the garment and the fluid loading. This has been totally quantified in detail. It has worked for a long time but we didn't quite know how well but now we know it works after long duration space flight and uh, that will be the uh, uh, countermeasure for autostatic intolerance in the future. So these are very, very strong uh, uh, countermeasures. And then we have uh, countermeasure like, on d- we, we don't have it for the sands which is the most important problem we have right now, mm. but we have ideas that it may be moving fluid from the upper body to the lower body using, not a box, but kind of developing a box into a portable structure in on the body that you can float in space. And still be performing uh, well enough with that on. So kind of a uh, suit uh, around the lower part of the body that draws blood back on a continuous basis. So, but that's the vision. It hasn't been developed yet. And um, another thing is uh, mitigating and counteracting the immune changes that we see in space. And we have uh, improved a lot on that on ISS. Without ISS, the immune problem would still be probably one of the most important ones. But now it's a kind of being degraded to a lower level because it turns out that the exercise system, the procedures we are using, the food that they are eating, um, the medication that they have but not using regularly but could be used, all of that in combination mitigates many of the immune changes and has improved over time. That has been shown recently by our lead scientist, Dr. Crucian. So this is very, very promising, but we still have some way to go in order to make it fully efficient. And then you have um, a sensory motor. System has been totally characterized after flight. So the balance system, the the, the confusion, the, the drunkenness, I described it as. Resist- they're not drunk. They don't drink on ISS, <laughs> except there were rumors on the uh, Mir space station, but I don't think it's true. Okay. They did smoke on Mir, but they didn't drink. So <laughs> maybe a little bit. I don't know. But in, on ISS we don't do that, and therefore, so they're not. But but I mean, that characterization of what systems are affected, to what degree, how long it takes to come back to normal with doing nothing, um, has been extremely valuable for us to develop the right countermeasure. And the countermeasure now is actually also part of the exercise system and we still need to test some additional countermeasures in order to make it more efficient. We know now also what you need to do pre-flight, how to train people to be a, have a better balance system, even after six months or more of flight. So. That is a huge advantage uh, for uh, our future missions, which we didn't have before uh, the ISS. Without the ISS, I don't think it would be possible to go into deep space on Mars. With the 20 years of experience, it's now possible to do that.
0: That is so important, and it's actually really coming to light just how important exercise is in all of this when you were going through all of the countermeasures that are implemented right now exercise you got the bone and muscle check Um, it helps a little bit with the immune side of things check i wouldn't have thought that one before Um, but but countermeasures can come in all these different shapes and sizes you got the exercise naturally yes the whole the whole way that um astronauts live and work in space having the exercise and the food and the sleep and everything maybe isn't countermeasure by itself you mentioned technology certain technology to help with making sure they don't faint when they come back, which is huge, right? So th- uh, countermeasures can come in all different shapes. It's absolutely fascinating um, how that all works and is implemented. And I think the biggest takeaway here is the the fact that, y- and you mentioned this several times, space station was the key to all of this.
2: Space station was the key to all of this, and it's it's been worthwhile mm-hmm. uh, to do this because it wouldn't have been possible to go into deep space on Mars without the space station. We still need it by the way um, we would like to use it more <laughs> mm. it is it's available at least until 2025 but i think it needs to be uh, extended beyond that because i have difficulties envisioning that we shouldn't have a platform permanently in orbit around the earth when we are preparing at the same time to go to the moon and mars but it's of course up to people at a higher level than me
0: yeah a closed platform is has been proven to be valuable of course yes. um so you know, we have all these countermeasures that we know work on the space station because we put them into put them into work now, and they're they're keeping the astronauts pretty healthy. Uh, I remember I forget who we talked to recently, but said that there are some instances where astronauts come back uh, healthier than they, or maybe stronger in a way because of how much they work out, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, I know there's talk of of one-year missions uh, because you know the one of the main things that Uh, may not be apparent from what we've described so far how important the International Space Station is, but it's a test platform. It's a great way to test stuff real close so that when we do go to the moon and and ultimately to Mars that we have a really good understanding of what's happening to the human body. So what additional insights might a one-year mission um, provide us?
2: Well, uh, one big, big question is duration of spaceflight and duration of being exposed to weightlessness. We know for six months you can prevail and mitigate it with a lot of resources being used to do that. Uh, the Russians have had five persons as we five individuals in space for one year more. Uh United States has had one close to one year and then it's mostly six months. So our experience with longer duration flights than six months is very limited, and the research that's been done is very limited. Uh, The record was done by Valery Polyakov in 1995, when he landed in Kazakhstan after 438 days in space in one continuum. And he did very, very well, Mm. but he had exercised a lot, and he's also a medical doctor who knows what to do or not to do in flight. So that was successful, but there's there's only one person and the testing afterwards, would probably also very limited compared to what we would like to do today. So we are planning for one year missions uh, in uh, 10 subjects uh, in order to have a strong statistical basis for our conclusions and doing many of the same experiments we've been doing in the past during six months of flight in order to see if adding six months will make things worse if so, can we mitigate and counteract it with the current countermeasures? Is the exercise efficient? Is the immune chain still being improved or will there be worse? Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the flu shifts? Will that be stay at the same level? Will it be improved or worse? We don't know that. Mm-hmm. And that is pivotal for preparing to go for longer duration in deep space. So it's duration and also creating a baseline for what we will later find and explore in deep space Uh, because when uh, people are going to the Moon and Mars, it will be with longer and longer durations, and it needs to be compared to low Earth orbit because the deep space radiation is added to that in deep space, which we don't have now in low Earth orbit. So you will also see the effects of radiation and duration in combination at that time. So we are with the one-year missions around the Earth, creating a baseline for those tests.
0: Okay. So, Laura, how does um, the countermeasures element Human health countermeasures. How how are we taking these ideas, these priorities that we have? You know, we really want to do. We really want to test a one-year mission. Um, we want to have all these analog studies that that study human health. How do you take all of these ideas and implement in the future, both in the analog direction, but then also ultimately in flight to test crew members for long periods of time?
1: Well, we take all of the the scientific strategy and we make a pristine. Uh, scientific strategy that um, is understandable uh, by the managers, Hmm. and then we start balancing it against the facilities that we have, uh, the money we have, the skill set, the research community we have, and um, have a pretty large spreadsheet, (laughs) and then we formulate uh, a workable plan based on that. And so we oftentimes do some back and forth uh, because we might have to make some compromises to the ideal science strategy because of schedule pressures. Another schedule pressure we have to um, honor, of course, is to deliver on time. Mm. So if something is needed for um, an Artemis mission, if something is needed for a long duration mission, we have to understand when those due dates are and make sure we build a schedule that meets those due dates. Um, So it's a real partnership between the the science and the management, and that's why we're designed the way we are to kind of work together closely and put together something that's scientifically ideal but practical.
0: Um, Are we looking at certain things for, are, are you, you know, budgeting certain ideas or efforts or elements towards more questions that we may want to answer on the moon with the artemis program because maybe you know the countermeasures countermeasures are good for microgravity sure but are they good on the moon will they translate nice is there that effort already in the human health and countermeasures? yes
1: and i'll i'll ask peter to expand on this but he's already brought up the, the radiation so with the shorter duration missions, of course, we lose duration, but we're going to gain some uh, radiation information, mm. and we'll have smaller, isolated, more confined environments. So, we'll be losing some some stressors, uh, like duration, but gaining other ones that are important scientifically.
2: Yeah, one, one big unknown, when you mention the moon, But you could also mention Mars as the next step. That is to understand the level of gravity on the moon and the effects on the human physiology. This is not known. It's it's virtually impossible to simulate that in a one G environment on Earth. So um, the ideal thing would be to have a huge centrifuge in space being rotated at several you know, like the Moonlight G or, or the Martian Gs, so that would be perfect for testing that without going there, actually, but it can't be done for technical reasons. So we don't know that. And therefore, we need to do a lot of testing on the lunar surface when that becomes possible, if there's a lunar base ever uh, to do this. Mm-hmm. And I guess that will be in the mid-20s to the end of the 20s. And we will do testing to see if one 6G, which is very low, by the way, protect somehow against the negative effects of a low-gravity environment. So we don't know that. And we don't know w- what the thresholds are for those protections, and we don't know how the Martian G will work on That's 0.38% of the Earth's gravity, a little more than one-third. So we don't know that. Mm-hmm. And um, my guess would be that, that the moon is very much like weightlessness, and there's... Uh, actually some protection on Mars that is good, because it will decrease our resources for mitigating some of the negative effects, and that makes it more possible to stay for a long time. I think that's a perception. Now, what we don't know is purely mm-hmm. guess. And I can tell you every time I guess, I'm um, incorrect. <laughs> so uh, we need to do the testing.
0: Yeah, this is where the, the good research comes into play. I think one thing that I took away from that, which I find interesting, is, um, you know, you talk about microgravity, and we you talked about the for example exercise that's being implemented as a countermeasure right now in microgravity sure you know exercise is probably important you said you're guessing is probably important on the moon but i think the word threshold came came up to my my mind because maybe it's not quite the same exactly you know because it's a lot of time dedication that much exercise so at what point are you mitigating the effects but still being efficient in the way that you're doing it. Exactly, so.
2: and that's one of the questions we're asking. So it's an excellent question we can't answer it right now. Yeah, We need to do some of the testings. We can simulate it uh, during parabolic flight where you can find different trajectories and you can do it at these levels. But it's only for 20 seconds, and it's preceded by high D levels that disturbs what you are observing during the low D levels. But you can do something. You can simulate in the water with, with a certain kind of loading. You can mm. deload people by using a hoist called Argos, by the way. Ar- Argos, yes. Mm-hmm. And... Um, um but it's not optimal because then you don't have the flu shift, So if you do that and uh, you could do it on the water, you have the flu shift, but then you don't you have the resistance of the water, you don't. So I mean, it's not the same thing. So we need to do testing on the moon and uh, that's hopefully what will happen in the trenches.
0: It's a very exciting time. Laura and Peter, thank you so much for coming on Houston Wave, a podcast and going into detail about human health and countermeasure, human <laughs> human health countermeasures. Um, really a pleasure talking to you guys today.
2: Thank you.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Hey, thanks for sticking around. Really good conversation we had on human health countermeasures with Laura Balweg and Peter Norse today. Very interesting conversation. Really hope you enjoyed it. This is, again, our fourth in our six-part series on the human research program. There's a lot more to check out. You can find us on nasa.gov slash podcast to check out us, as well as our many other colleagues at NASA who are all doing podcasts right at that website. If you want to know what's going on in the Human Research Program, great website for that too, nasa.gov HRP. You can really get a breakdown of what they're doing and find out how to get involved in some of the research. We are on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to talk to us, use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. Just make sure to, make sure to mention it is for Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on November 19th, 2019. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Greg Wiseman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, Belinda Polito, Jennifer Hernandez, Brett Redden, Emily Malden, and the Human Research Program team for helping to bring this all together. And thanks again to Laura Balweg and Peter Norsk for taking the time to come on the show. We'll be back next week.